Welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter. My guest is Dr. Timothy Pitchell. Some folks call him Dr. Procrastination, and it's not because he procrastinates. Just the opposite, I think. Dr. Pitchell is a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario in Canada. He's done a ton of research into why we procrastinate and the effect it has on our health and well-being. He's also a best-selling author, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, A Concise Guide to Strategies for Positive Change, published in 2013, and in 2016, Procrastination, Health, and Well-Being. So, Dr. Pitchell, my first question is, whatever got you interested in researching procrastination? Well, that's a great place to start, Diane, but please, too, you may call me Tim. Uh, I was actually studying people's goal pursuit in the 80s for my master's and then into the 90s in my PhD. So I was very interested in what people were doing, because that's another way to look at personality. We can look at traits as the having of personality, and then there's the doings, the things that were Uh, going on in our lives. And so I looked at these personal projects, our goals, and how they predicted well-being. In the course of doing that research, and particularly the qualitative phase of my doctoral uh, research where we interviewed people, I realized the thing that really affected our well-being, and ultimately later on our health, is the things we said we're going to do and never did. So quite literally, when I finished defending my doctoral dissertation, my external examiner asked me, so what's next, Tim? And I said, I'm going to stop studying what people are doing and start studying what people say they're going to do and never do. And that's procrastination. Were you a procrastinator at the time? Uh, sure. I think uh, I, I don't think I was particularly troubled by it more than anybody else. It's funny. A, a physician asked me that just the other day when she found out what I studied. Oh, are you trying to heal yourself? I said, well, I, I procrastinated. There's no doubt about that. And university is a place rife with procrastination. I think that's why there's so much interest in it you know, among my students. But yes, I procrastinated back then, uh, but not to an extent that I say that it was any more problematic for me than others. I, I wonder why it is that some people have more of a problem of it than others. Well, that's the question we probably want to spend the rest of the time answering together. Uh, some of it's personality. But I guess the, the the place to start is that we all procrastinate from time to time, although I really rarely do it nowadays because, as you'll hear as we talk, I just have no wiggle room for self-deception, and I know a lot of strategies to defeat it. But the situations that typically get us to procrastinate are things that we don't like to do. No surprises there. The things we find aversive, the things that when they come up, you say, oh, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. And you hear that from kids a lot, and I hear it from my own. And then I always say, well, I didn't ask you what you feel like or what you want to do. It's time to do this. Now, there's certainly characteristics of the person that come into play. So, for example, now I was just thinking about this this morning, that you know, we can face things that we don't want to do, but you can overcome that with a bit of self-control or self-discipline. Now, this is related to a major personality trait called conscientiousness. Uh, personality psychologists are a little bit like artists. Artists say there are three primary colors, more than just artists, the physics of color. But the three primary colors can make any other color. Well, personality psychologists argue there are five basic traits, and these super traits or basic traits combine and have uh, sub-traits, facets that can, can create any person. Well, one of the major traits is conscientiousness. And in a nutshell, that's how self-disciplined are you? How organized? How dutiful? 
And if you're low on conscientiousness, not surprising, you're typically high on procrastination. The variables are very highly correlated. Some people even say it's a source trait for procrastination because you don't really have anything to draw on. And at the very least, if you're low in conscientiousness, it's a risk factor. But then at the flip side of that as well, if you're really impulsive as a person, high impulsivity leads to more procrastination. And the third that's often studied is a form of perfectionism. And I say a form because there's more one, more than one flavor of perfectionism. We typically think that, you know, that you're either a perfectionist or you're not. But some people are perfectionists in the sense that it's oriented towards their self. It's a self-oriented perfectionism. And we don't see these people procrastinating. They just want to do a good job. But it's the socially prescribed perfectionists. These are people who are trying to live up to the unrealistic expectations of others they typically procrastinate because they're internalizing these expectations, typically unrealistic, and it freezes them in the spot. So imagine you start putting these together. Someone who's not very dutiful or organized or self-disciplined and someone who's rather impulsive and someone who's internalized all these negative thoughts and expectations. The moment they face uh, a task that they find aversive, it's difficult, it's stressful, it frustrates them, it bores them, then, of course, they can impulsively run away. They have no self-control or self-discipline to draw on. And meanwhile, they've got all this internal negative dialogue going on that pushes them even further away. So those kind of things in a nutshell are the kind of characteristics of the person that make a big difference. It wears me out to even think about all the things you just described. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did put a lot into those few minutes of description, but it, it does capture you know the basics. Now, there's all lots of nuances in there, but those things matter a great deal in trying to understand procrastination. But bottom line is, and I think you heard it when I talked about it, is that many people think procrastination is a time management problem. And while time management is necessary, it's never sufficient. So for example, we set up an interview today. If I was a terrible procrastinator, I could have shown up late or uh, emailed, given you an excuse because maybe uh, I was, um, frustrated by being asked or maybe I was a little bit insecure and fearful about how the interview would go and so now I'm having these negative emotions. Well, how do I get rid of negative emotions? Well, one way is to avoid. So we see procrastination as a emotion coping strategy. We use avoidance to get rid of the negative emotions we feel and in that sense, present self trumps future self. Present self feels good, uh, but future self has that waiting for him or her. And it's the same person. I mean, when you think of future self, you may in that moment think, don't even connect yourself to the fact that you are the future self. So you're going well, to suffer no matter what. Yes, and, and that's true. And in fact, that's why we call procrastination amongst other behaviors like overeating or spending money we don't have or gambling too much self-defeating behaviors because it is future self. It's the self in the future that's going to pay. When you buy shoes you can't afford or eat calories that just make you unhealthy and or if you gamble too much and then you have debt and the same thing with procrastination that we use time we really don't have or and and that that future self present self dichotomy is really important because we don't think about future self like we do present self that's really interesting about how our brains seem to work we think about future self more like a stranger we actually process information differently in the brain about future self. The work of uh, Hal Hirschfeld at UCLA has shown us that different parts of our brain are active when we think about present self, future self, and stranger. And the present self activity is uh, dissimilar from future self, 
And future self acti brain activity is more similar to the stranger. So we actually think about future self in a different way. And we will do things to strangers we won't do to, to present self. So we sort of detach ourselves from our future selves. We do. And in fact, some of the most recent research we've done is to try to connect ourselves better, more with future self. Because the research now that we have just in press that will be published soon shows that when we think a bit about future self, we time travel and imagine ourselves in the future. And we did this in a few ways. We had people think about themselves in the first person, so imagining being in their own skin, in the third person watching from afar, but this is their thinking of future self. They actually developed more empathy for future self. And of course, when we have empathy for future self, present self may make different choices because thinking, why would I want to hurt that person? And so yes, it's really important to recognize that, as you said so clearly, but future self's me. So why am I doing this to me? Well, so I think I, um, unwittingly or whatever, I, I use that approach in making important decisions, um, especially um, recently. I'm in my 60s now, and uh, so I'm more able to see kind of uh, the end of the spectrum than I might have when I was in my 20s or 30s. But here's what I do. Uh, if I'm faced with what I think is an important decision, I will ask myself, okay, Diane, if you were on your deathbed, would you be really ticked off at yourself for not doing this or trying this? And uh, it, the answer usually comes pretty quickly that I can say, yes, I, I, you'll, you'd be mad at yourself. So that helps me to make a decision to, to do it. Um, if I falter, I'm not sure, then I can look at it a different way. Well, maybe this isn't as important as you thought it was. I think that's extremely important. What you said there is something that I feel very strongly about in relation to procrastination because people often ask me, are you still studying procrastination? Mm. It's been over 20 years. I say, yeah, it's still quite fascinating why we become our own worst enemy and there's many things that relate to it. But deep down, it's a, as you've captured it, it's a deeply existential issue. As you noted, I'm in my early 60s now too and so it does give us a different perspective on the time that remains. So certainly people in their 20s will say, oh, there's lots of time, manana, that I don't need to do it now. And there's more of a sense of urgency. So it's not necessarily a virtue on our parts that we have this perspective. It's come with age. But it is very important to develop this early. And in fact, I mentioned Hal Hirschfield's research. He actually had younger participants in his studies look at a digitally aged picture of themselves or a picture of themselves now. So there's two conditions in the experiment. You're either seeing yourself as you look now or as you're going to look in the future. And lo and behold, when these people are given an, um, a resource allocation task. In other words, they're given some play money or at least some resources and said, how would, you, how would you allocate this? How would you spend it? And those who looked at their present self spent more right now. So maybe buying the big screen TV or taking a trip or going to restaurants. But the people who had seen their future selves put more away for retirement savings. So they recognize that, th that this is gonna make a difference. But as you said so clearly, you put it right to the end and say, well, how would I feel on my deathbed? And it's, it really surprised me that Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book amongst many, he wrote many books, but the, his most popular and the one that's been translated into over 20 languages, Man's Search for Meaning, even wrote about procrastination in his own autobiography because he recognized time is precious and that the one thing that all of us have as a non-renewable resource in our life is time. And why would we waste it? So I think what you've said there is so important for any of us to remember that deep down, 
procrastination is not getting on with life itself. Right. And I'm sure there are people who are at the end of their lives who have regrets because they had something they wanted to say or wanted to do and they didn't do it. Yeah. In fact, quite a few years ago, I attended a conference. I'm not a clinician. I'm a psychological scientist you would say, I'm in a research university. So I do uh, experimental studies or uh, observational studies or correlational studies to look at this. I don't counsel people. But I went to a conference that was focused on helping those who are grieving and dealing with death. And someone spoke directly to what you just said, the regrets that are felt. And so I pushed the presenter quite hard on his research. And sure enough, it's the things we said we were going to do and never did that brought great grief to those who are living with their grief or great regret for those who are living with their grief. And so that procrastination has that deep cost that, hey, this was my life and I just wasted it. I said I was going to do this and I never did. And so I think most of us or all of us need to hang on at to that at times uh, because it might be one of the few things that actually motivates us to do these really sometimes they're mundane things but sometimes they're life-altering things where you take a risk and you just get put yourself out there well you hear about people making their bucket lists yes that's true and 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 i i'm not keen on that concept because it's become such a trendy uh, it's actually not even trendy anymore at all because I mean, it's, it's become so popular but it, it does ring true of this idea of that i need to do this before i die right. um yeah, but i think we have to bring that into the present every day because you know we still think that sometime in the future we all imagine we're going to live to be 95 and healthy and as opposed to wow today's a, a gift what am i going to do with today and and use that in a meaningful way so let's talk about the day-to-day mundane things that we procrastinate on. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that it's not a time management problem. I mean, so, some people have time management problems, but in general, procrastination is more emotional. Yes. So, like, if you and I put anything on our schedule. Uh, what's interesting is often we put it on for tomorrow, <laughs> not right now. We don't right. like to commit to what we're going to do today. And then tomorrow comes and that time comes and we have an an affect of an emotional reaction to it our emotions are really quick uh they're they're much faster neurologically than our these slow thinking processes and we can talk about some of the the brain areas that are associated with those things but the key thing is there that we have this emotional reaction and as i said even children will say i don't feel like it i don't want to and i've I've attached some of those emotions already, like boredom and frustration and a fear of failure and uh, resentment. Uh, all of these things then make us want to avoid, not approach. And so we have to get past that initial resistance. And if we can't manage those emotions, we're going to end up uh, using some coping strategy like procrastination to uh, uh, serve for present self to survive it. It's interesting. When I um, first entered the world of reporting, I used to be a television health reporter, and I can remember those early days. I would sit at my desk knowing that I had to make a phone call to interview somebody and dreading it and doing all those things that you were just talking about. I was anxious, fearful that I was going to sound stupid. I would ask the wrong questions. The person wouldn't want to talk to me. I wasted a lot of time. Oh, we do. In fact, now we've been focusing on the negative things. So that's the perfect place to say, so what do you do instead? Well, I, I love the 
way back in the 70s when I was an undergraduate, like many undergraduates going through a great deal of searching, I read my existential authors, I read Zen Buddhist authors, and I love some of the Zen Buddhist cones or stories. And there was the story of the monk who was seeking enlightenment, and he said to the master, how do I achieve enlightenment? And the master looks at him a little incredulously and says, have you finished eating your rice? And he said, yes. He said, then wash your bowl. <laughs> and the Buddhist, yes, exactly. It's just this, well, to take the next action. And I'm going to come back to that specifically in just a moment. Because the Buddhists will often say, you know, the human condition is we have monkey mind. And I, when I've talked to large audiences about this, I'll say, imagine that we have the technology that a screen could appear above each of your heads. And on that screen would appear all your thoughts and emotions. And the only control you have is to turn it off or turn it on. How many people would turn it off? Well, most people would, because we're squirrely. And that's another way to say we have monkey mind. Like, just think of the things you think and feel, even in the seconds you're listening to this podcast. And so we, we have to recognize that we have this busy mind, and you can't shut it off. I mean, psychologists will show you that repression and suppression does not work when we're trying to manage our emotions. It's a bit like the story of don't think of a pink elephant. Of course, then all you can do is think about the pink elephant. So repression and suppression doesn't work. And drawing on this Buddhist metaphor of we have monkey mind, we have to give the monkey something to do. And so in, instead of like focusing on the fact that, yeah, I resent this, oh, this is so boring, or I'm so afraid, what if they say no to me when I pick up the phone and ask them if I can do this interview? Instead, we say, what's the next action? And we get it, we drill it down as small as possible. So as you told your story, I was thinking, yes, and then I'd say to myself, what's the next action? I have to pull out the phone number and then just start punching those numbers on the phone. And honestly, that's the only thing that gets me doing something some days when I hit that same feeling of resistance, those fears or those those uncertainties. You say, yep, I'm having those emotions. I don't need to be those emotions. What's the next action? And as soon as I put my focus there, then I find myself doing things. And once I'm doing, it's priming the pump. And again, psychological research shows us that progress on a goal fuels our well-being and when we fuel our well-being we fuel our motivation because the moment you're on the phone you're you're realizing i'm doing the job and that feels good that does feel good and when you decide to put it off it maybe feels um you feel relief maybe you don't necessarily feel good but you feel relief ah i don't have to deal with it right now mm -hmm. but, then, but then what comes back to bite you is guilt right and self self-doubt and and even self-loathing, because you, you know, I, th I love the way you frame that, because you said you're a health reporter, and as a health reporter, your job was to contact people and interview them. And so if you didn't at the end of the day, then you'd have to say, what kind of health reporter am I? And I see this in professors all the time. One of the tasks that most professors really don't like to do is grade. Grading is really hard work, and we don't like to make these evaluative judgments, although we're all still pretty good at it. And so we put it off and then we won't grade for a day and you go, oh, I got to be the worst professor in the world. Why am I in this job? Right. And so we all understand this downward spiral of negative emotions that that procrastination breeds. But there is this upward spiral. In fact, psychologists have written about this as an upward spiral of happiness when we make progress. And the only way we make progress is to focus on such a small step that it becomes ludicrous for us to, to even deny that we could do that. I could punch numbers on the phone. I don't think about making the call because that's overwhelming me. I'm just going to dial the phone. And once I get moving that direction, then as I say, I've primed the pump and off I go. 
So it's uh, crafting a strategy for yourself. In a way. Very much so. Yeah. And, and, and uh, there are other strategies as well that come from psychological research. So most of the time when we think about a goal, we think of a broad goal. Like I'm going to make a number of, I'm going to stick with your example of being a health reporter. And so I'm going to um, make six contacts today around the story that I'm interested in. But they have this broad goal or I'm even even broader that you say, I'm going to make some contacts today. But that goal isn't specific enough uh, and planful enough to have any motivational force. Plans help us by having motivational force. But we have to make the the actual plan a little bit more focused. And so there's a psychologist by the name of Peter Galwitzer, who's done an incredible amount of research on a notion of implementation intentions, how to implement, that's the root, implementation intentions. And implementation intentions are different than broad goal intentions, because as he frames them, they're when-then statements. When this happens, then this happens. And they're very important in a few ways. First of all, we, we're very habitual people are, human beings are, and so our habits are very internal. But a when-then statement usually puts the stimulus for action in the environment. When this happens, then I'll do that. So when I get off the podcast recording with Diane, then I will do this. And so then I have this stimulus for action that's outside of me. And it's remarkable how different implementation intentions are in terms of success. In some studies, it's gone from 50% of people who just had a goal intention would achieve it, where 100% of people who had an implementation intention would achieve it. And, th and this is an area of health as well. So very powerful. So and you don't, a practical, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, so you don't leave things open-ended. No, you don't leave things open-ended and you make it very specific to time and place. And, you know, you were talking about being a health reporter. My favorite implementation intention that I know so well is around flossing my own teeth. <laughs> because there was a time when my dental hygienist would say, you know, you're, you're, you're getting gum disease here, Tim. I'm measuring like almost three and four millimeters in places. And this is dangerous for your health. And no matter how I could internalize that intellectually, for some reason, I say, I don't feel like flossing. And it, it became this big barrier for me, even though it takes like 60 seconds. <laughs> So I, I use the, the strategy of an implementation intention, and I, I brought in another habit that I want to talk about, which is leveraging existing habits. Some psychologists call it event segmentation theory, in the sense that in our lives there are many events, like there's a going, a bed, going to bed event and getting up event and going to work event, and there's quite a script for those things. In fact, we can find ourselves turning on the highway, as we typically do, just because that's our script for getting to work. Well, I had a brushing my teeth script uh, and I could leverage that because I always brushed my teeth. So I just made a simple implementation intention. When I pick up the toothpaste, I will put the floss on the counter. That was it. When then? When I pick up the toothpaste, then I'll put the floss on the counter. When I put down my toothbrush, I will pick up the floss. And I've never stopped flossing my teeth. Now, what's really interesting is that don't think for a minute I feel like it. <laughs> Although I have gotten closer to that because there's nothing like a flossed mouth to feel really fresh, of course. Even though I know there's research now that says you don't need to floss teeth, but I have two of my best friends are dentists and they say that's nonsense. <laughs> well, I'd have to agree with that. I think it's good for your gums, just yes, like it you is. said. And, and I'm surprised that there's that research out there and my, my two dental friends say that's that's crazy. Like <laughs> people need to floss. And maybe there's some individual differences in there. But, but the key thing for this story 
is that we talked about strategies. I talked about monkey mind and picking the next action. But in psychological research, there's this notion of implementation intentions. It's very powerful. And what you have to do is be strategic, like I was, in terms of leveraging something I already did to build on that. And then you make these little, as Charles Duhigg likes to talk about, keystone habits, things that really make a change for you. Because I'll tell you, once I started realizing I could be successful, I could change a habit like brush, flossing my teeth, I realized this is powerful. I can do this for lots of things. Now, don't change everything at once, but this is a powerful, powerful technique. And, well, but I have to remind everyone, doesn't mean you're going to feel like it. There's still nights where I go, oh, I'm too tired. I, I want to give myself permission to cheat. And I say, don't go there, Tim. Just put the floss down on the counter and pick the floss up. Don't make it more than that. Right, and that's what strikes me is how simple you made it. I didn't expect you to say that you would put the dental floss on the counter when you picked up your toothbrush. I didn't expect that. I thought no, you were going to say that you, when you got your toothbrush, you'd put it down and start flossing. But no, you broke it down into an even simpler step. Yeah, just having it there. Plus, you know, you could imagine you could put up a picture of a, a bad gum disease <laughs> mouth like your dentist might. But that's not necessarily motivating. And and in fact, I could feel more aversion towards it. And we can talk about that in other ways, too. But, yeah, you have to have these little steps to getting you doing the action. Because even as that, you know, one of these productivity gurus like David Allen, who says getting things done, that's that next action thing. He says, we don't do projects, we do actions. And I really think... It's a very insightful way to put it. And so my focus is always on what's the next action. In my own writing, I say, just get started. But then people say, well, just get started on what? Well, what's the next action? And then some people will push back because res resistance knows no bounds, right? There's always another way to push back and resist. And they'll say, but what if I don't know what the next action is? Well, take your best guess. Just do something that's related to that task. You know, it doesn't, you can start in the middle, for goodness sakes. And sometimes um, you have to a attack whatever uh, from a different angle in a way. Like I decided I wanted to work with a personal trainer, even talk to one. And we were going to uh, work out a trade. I would blog about the experience and he would be my personal trainer. Mm -hmm. We were going to do it in January. Well, January came along and I started coming up with, I guess, excuses because I felt anxious about it. Well, God love him. Thankfully, he sent me an email <laughs> and said, okay, are you ready to get started? And uh, so I've been doing it. But what has helped me, I see, is the motivation, the push from him. We have a regular schedule. And um, I don't want to let myself down, but I also don't want to let him down. The fact that I'm blogging about it makes me even more accountable. Mm -hmm. So there are different things that you can do to help you push through. Absolutely. I have a good friend who's a philosopher at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And uh, he writes about extended will. He and Joe Heath from the University of Toronto. I, I have to explain about, a little bit what he means by the concept, and then I'm going to embed that in what you just said, which is that if I said to you what's three times three, you'd immediately say nine. And we can do that in our head, <laughs> although some kids seem to s struggle. I know I did. And then if I said to you, what's 385 times 486? You say, I can't do that. I said, what if I give you a piece of paper and a pencil? Oh, yeah, I could do that then. Well, that's called extended cognition. You're able to extend what you're able to do mentally by having a tool, this paper and pencil. 
Well, extended will builds on that notion that so often we think of willpower as an internal thing. And as in your story, you have extended will by having a trainer, a trainer who said, hey, it's January. And you've extended your will in other ways by making yourself accountable to others. And so we can always look at ways to uh, what they call it in the psychological research as environmental affordances. What is the environment affording for us? And so anybody who's ever tried to diet before, a good dietitian, the first thing, or nutritionist would say, don't have snacks in the house. Because the environmental affordance then is that you're going to, as soon as you get hungry, there's going to be this bag of chips. Instead, the, the environmental affordance you want is to get up in the morning and cut up some fruit and have some carrots there. So when you get hungry, that's what's available. So the environment is supporting you just as your trainer is now and just as your blog is. So all of us have to think past the idea of exerting our own internal will and seeing this as a how can I structure the environment to help me succeed? So I want to ask you about a couple of other um, things that probably most of us do and ask if they are linked to procrastination. Multitasking. Is that linked <laughs> to procrastination? Well, I'm sure everyone's heard this from some source, but multitasking, the cognitive psychologist tells us is a myth that we, we do one task at a time and we're just task switching. So although many of us can task switch quickly and some of us particularly extroverts really enjoy the stimulation of having many things on the go it's actually detrimental to us getting things done now where multitasking particularly intersects with procrastination is that if i have a task at hand that i find aversive in some ways and a reminder that you know those things aversiveness has many flavors but typically it's boring and frustrating and, and might be you might be fearful or you're uncertain so that's a task you'd rather avoid so if you're in a multitasking environment where you can say, oh, I'll just check my email or, oh, I'll just update my social media feed, pick your favorite one, Instagram or Facebook, you name it, then now you're off task and you've given yourself permission. And in a world where distractions in the palm of your hand, I mean, limitless distraction, then it's not surprising that when you say it'll only take me a minute, three hours later, you're wondering, why am I watching kitten videos on YouTube? Oh, yeah. Right? And and we all know that experience. And now not all of us watch kitten videos, but we can all pick our favorite where we end up. And we don't even know how we got there, quite frankly. And we, we think it's multitasking, but it's just another form that that resistance takes that we refuse to put ourselves into a focused uh, environment. Just that's really helping us with our task. We're saying, oh, no, I'm a multitasker. No, we're trying to distract ourselves. And the last thing I'd add is that, and I've mentioned it in passing already, uh, when I say it'll only take a minute, we make rational decisions, like it'll only take a minute, over irrationally short periods of time, a minute. Because it's true, it's a rational decision to say it will only take me a minute to click on my Facebook feed or my Instagram and see what's there. But a minute later, we face the same decision and that's what makes it irrational. Because a minute later, now that I've given myself license, I think, well, I can do it again. And it's a bit like the smoker who said, well, I'm going to quit smoking, but certainly one more cigarette won't kill me. Well, that's, that's rational. That one more cigarette isn't going to kill you, but it's on the same path. So we have to be very careful. Whenever you hear yourself say, it'll only take me a minute, then recognize it for what it is. You're, that means you're going to step away from what you're doing, and that's going to come as a cost. And all of that gets in the umbrella of, yeah, but I'm a multitasker. No, you're distracting yourself from the task at hand. Okay, so you are procrastinating because you don't really want to do what it is you're supposed to be doing. Yes. 
All right. What about to-do lists? Are, hmm. are, is that a good thing or a, a way to procrastinate? It's, it's both. Um, you know, I've read a, a lot of the motivational literature, the self-help performance literature, because I've done workshops for people that wanted to know those things. And so people that have effective to-do lists will have two or three things on them. They'll review them the night before. They'll start that day. For many of us, we go, oh, okay, I'm overwhelmed here. Let me just write down all the things I have to do. <sighs> Good. That's enough for today. <laughs> the, the list itself becomes the work. And the irony, and I do a comic on my own website. I started this years ago because students don't read research papers, but I thought I could capture some of this in comic form. And one of the comics is this fellow thinks, I need to make a to-do list. And then after making his to-do list, his friend sees him watching television. She said, I thought you're busy. What are you doing? Oh, my to-do list says I don't start until tomorrow. Hmm. And I joked with you earlier about that. We, we rarely say, okay, this is what I'm going to do right now. Um, there's nothing like tomorrow to make us feel good now. So to-do lists have that that potential. It's a double-edged sword. They can be a wickedly good tool, but they can also be an excuse maker as we shift things around and we put things off and we think that the to-do list itself is the work. And maybe sometimes you need to take a look at your to-do list and realize that some things really shouldn't even be on them. Well, that's such an important point, Diane. If so people so many people don't see that because people will say, so you don't procrastinate anymore. I say, not really, but there's times I just take things right off my to-do list because I realize I'm not doing that. And, and I, it's not what I want to do. It's not what I should be doing. And th those are easy decisions. And we all have to learn them early in life. You have to learn how to say no. And one of the ways I learned to do that was someone taught me that if you say yes to this, you're going to have to say no to something else right. at some point. And so then I've learned, yeah. And and typically that meant that I, I was saying no to family, thinking that's crazy. Like, where's where are my priorities here? So, yes, you have to learn how to say no. You have to take things off your list. You have to be strategic. And that's the, the crucial word. Well, I, we're at the end just about of our time. And I did want you to leave us with just three steps we should take to break ourselves of procrastination. So you're sort of on that um, bent right now. So Sure. Well, I have, I'm going to talk about things that I haven't talked about and then overlap with others I did. The first one is that look at the things, just take a minute and write down the things that you've been putting off. In fact, I'm going to run a workshop on the weekend for students this way. And, and what are the emotions attached with those tasks? And what is procrastination buying you? Like you have to recognize, you have to start to grapple with what, why, what am I getting from procrastination? Because it's rewarding you somehow. And typically it's that short-term relief that you talked about. So first and foremost, let's get clear about what you're putting off. Because maybe, as you said, Dan, some of those things don't even belong on your list. And you keep beating yourself up with the word procrastination when you really have no intention of getting them done. But now if you've got a task on your list that you think, no, no, this is mine and I am putting it off. Then I would go back to a couple of things I've said already. You've got the broad goal intention of getting it done. Let's make an implementation intention. When then? When are you going to do what? And make that very concrete. A study that I didn't talk about yet is a study about the fact that when we think about things concretely, cognitively, they seem to have some urgency to them. They seem to belong to the present. So make it as concrete as possible. When this happens, then I'll do this. And finally, don't ever think you're going to feel like it. That's a myth. And, and I don't know why adults end up like children thinking that they're waiting for their muse. That bus doesn't stop here anymore. Don't wait for your muse. You have to really just show up every day 
and it's any good writer or creative person will tell you that 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 routine of showing up is crucial so when i talk about don't expect to feel like it uh, that even with my tooth flossing or exercise or you name it yeah you can say yep yeah, i don't feel like it but what's the next action and that's a personal mantra expect i'm not going to feel like it but it's not important that i feel like it and if you don't mind i just close with a really quick story that my son alex when he was six years old I said to him, I thought to myself, you know, it's time he made his own bed. I said, Alex, time to make your bed. And not surprisingly, he said, ah, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. And as you heard me say, when my kids say that, I say, I didn't ask you what you feel like or what you want to do. It's time to make your bed. But, you know, you don't want to argue with a six-year-old. You don't get very far. So I said to him, I'm an educator for a long time, so this is amusing. I said, hey, how would you like to get a dollar? Because <laughs> uh, we think money motivates. He said, you want to pay me a dollar to make my bed? And I said, no, no. I'll give you a dollar if you can count to 10 before I can make your bed. But you have to count 1,001, 1,002. So he started to count and he got to six and I said, done. He said, I don't get my dollar, do I? I said, no, but what did you learn? It takes you six seconds to make my bed. Yep, and it might take you eight seconds because there's just a sheet, a duvet, and a pillow and I don't have to walk around it. His bed's been made every day, every day since then because he realizes we're talking eight seconds. <laughs> but we've got all sorts of tasks in our lives like that. So I want, if I can, in the closing, just to say that one of these strategies is to remember we have that six-year-old alive and well in us. And when we say, I don't feel like it, I don't want to, we got to go back to that notion of, you know, just getting started here with the next action is just seconds away. Perfect way to end. I, I do want to let people know where they can learn more about your research. You've got a blog, you've got a podcast, and of course you have the books. Everything can be found at a very easy website, procrastination.ca. Like the key thing is that suffix. It's not .com. I'm really not there to sell you anything. The blog is free. The podcast is free. The book I, I used to give away when I first published it, but Penguin Tarcher picked it up. And so now it's for sale. Um, but uh, all the podcast and blog and all of that's for free. And all my research is there. So procrastination.ca, the .ca stands for Canada.ca. It's like .edu, so it's not .com. Procrastination.ca, and you can find more about me there than you'd ever want to know. Oh, I've learned a ton from getting ready for our interview and talking with you. I feel extraordinarily motivated to get even more things accomplished. I think, I know, not I think, my next task is to put on my outdoors clothes and help my husband clear away some ice. <laughs> well, good, good luck with that, Diane. I did that for two hours this morning. Well, thank you, Dr. Pitchell. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Dr. Timothy Pitchell, otherwise known as Dr. Procrastination. If you have any comments or questions about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future podcast, send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Catching Health, and Catching Health is also on Facebook. For more health reporting that makes a difference, visit catchinghealth.com. Mm -hmm.